was leaving the store and she couldn't find her car keys. And you know the thrill, you go through every pocket in your purse, frantically, you check your pockets, I'm your everywhere, and you can't, she couldn't find her keys. And so she suddenly realized she must have left them in the ignition of the car. And so frantically, she ran out to the parking lot, thinking as she went of all the times her husband had scolded her for leaving the cars in the ignition because he knew the car would be stolen if she did that. So as she looked around the empty parking lot, she realized that he was right. So she grabbed her cell phone and called the police, gave them her location, said she left the keys in the car and it had been stolen. And then she had to make the most difficult call of all to her husband. I left my keys in the car and it's been stolen, she said. And there was a moment of silence. And she thought the call had been disconnected. Are you kidding me? He barked. I dropped you off. <laughs> well, now it was her turn to be silent, and she said, come and get me, please. And he said, I will, just as soon as I can convince this cop that I didn't steal your car. <laughs> situation that David found himself in at Aethagizet. And so, as I thought about this chapter, these three chapters, I'm sure David said to himself, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I bet he said those very words as chapter 29 opens and he finds himself in a situation by which there is no visible means of escape. I mean, he's been overcome by depression and fear of Saul, and he sought refuge among the Philistines. And the deadly raids that he conducted from Ziklag convinced King Achish of David's trustworthiness. And he was so successful in duping Achish that he's invited to join the Philistine army to attack the very people of whom God had anointed him to be king. And I know... Uh, we heard this last week from Michelle, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Sir Walter Scott was right. Well, what a disastrous situation this is. David, the man of God, is going into battle, but he's on the wrong side. I mean, is he, think about this, is he actually going to attack his own people when he gets into the battle? Uh, is he going to try to kill the Philistines, even though he's going to be outnumbered? Um, do you think Saul's men are going to recognize him and try to kill him? I mean, you can think this every way to next Sunday, and you, you can't, there's no way to figure this out. So this is the kind of situation you find yourself in when you look to the Philistines to be your savior. David is not the only one who's done this. I have, and I bet you have too. And there's much to learn from our text this morning. Well, the Philistine commanders take one look at David and his men, what are these Hebrews doing here? Or maybe they said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Or maybe they said, what are these Hebrews doing here? Uh, you can imagine. They are aghast. And Achish starts bragging on David and tells them that David, the servant of Saul, who's been with him for over a year, he's found no fault in him from the day he deserted until now. And Achish says, haven't you guys heard of mercenaries? These guys are on our side now. Well, the military brass don't buy Achish's arguments for one second. 
Make the man go back to his place. Send him packing. They have way too much common sense. They know David's reputation, but they also know the jingle. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. That jingle keeps making its way through our story. And the commanders are amazed. How could he be so naive? So Achish comes back to David and tells him, as the Lord lives, you've been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army are pleasing in my sight. I've not found evil in you. And then Achish delivers the bad news that is really the good news. Return and go in peace. Now this is really pretty funny. Achish stands there apologetically emphasizing how he thinks David should go into battle with him and extolling David's faithfulness, which in all reality, he has no reason to extol. And then David, on the other hand, has disbelief on his face and exasperation in his voice, and he protests the rejection. He has no reason to protest. And at this point, didn't you kind of want to just say, zip it and walk away? Turn around and walk away. And Achish then tries to smooth things over, and he even compares David to an angel of God. This is out of my hands. In the morning, you must leave for Ziklag. Well, God's ways are surprising. Well, what instruments does the Lord use to rescue his servant from this dilemma? He uses the commanding officers of the Philistines. And this isn't the first time the Philistines have come to David's rescue. If you remember back in chapter 23, Saul was closing in on David in the wilderness of Maon, and the Philistines raided the land, and Saul had to drop his pursuit, and they called that place the Rock of Escape. Do you remember that? The Philistines make such unwitting but effective servants. And how ironic that in this passage, the pagan king Achish is the only one who mentions God at all. The Lord is not mentioned by the future king even once. And there's no mention of prayer. So what this tells us is that David is not in a good place spiritually. But God rescues him anyway. David's enemies are his deliverers. And one Bible teacher says, I thought this was a good quote, the text carries no guarantee for me that God will use my enemies to deliver me. It does not promise me that if I get my life so tangled by my own cleverness and foolishness, off track by my own short-sighted decisions and rebellion, that the Lord will infallibly rescue me from my mess. What he's done for David, he may not do in the same way for me. But what the text does teach is that even in our folly and fainting fits, we are still no match for our God, who has thousands of unguessable ways by which he rescues his people, even by the mouths of Philistines. He can make the enemy service as a friend. He not only prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies, but also has the knack of making the enemies prepare the table. Mm -hmm. The wonder and surprise of God's ways are intended to elicit a response from us. They are meant to lead us to worship and praise. There ought to be those times in your life when you throw up your hands and say out loud with the Apostle Paul, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. God's ways are surprising. But his mercy is also tenacious. Morning comes and David and the men head for Ziklag and God has provided a way of escape. 
And we may be thinking, I mean, I was certainly thinking, well, David didn't deserve to be rescued like that. He made an incredibly bad decision to go to Philistia. And he reached a breaking point where he couldn't trust God anymore. It had been too hard for too long, and there was no end in sight. He ran from Saul. He ran from God straight to the Philistines. So my question is, can you realize <coughs> Have you believed God? and trusted him only to have things get even worse? Are you hanging on by the skin of your teeth financially wondering if you can make the rent or mortgage payment this month? Do you have a prodigal who's broken your heart and walked away from the Lord? Or do you have a rebellious child who wants nothing to do with your God and his ways? Do you have someone in your life who's done nothing but return evil for good? Have you run away from God in your heart just because you can't deal with it anymore. Well, I have. And all the while, coming to church and playing the role of the good Christian. Just like David, I quit believing God. So the question is, does a man or a woman who behaves like David find himself forsaken of God? And the answer is, indeed he does not, and indeed she does not. And when we place chapter 29 and God's rescue of David right alongside chapter 27, when he wanders off into the land of the Philistines, he doesn't wander there, he goes there deliberately, and David's faithless choice, the character of God shines brilliantly. God's mercy pursues his servants even in their bad choices, foolishness, and rebellion. And no matter how far our wanderings take us from God, we are never beyond the reach of our wonderful Lord. And there is some good news for all of God's servants in this episode of the life of God's chosen king. God does not cast us off in our foolishness. And our bungling does not cause his mercy to evaporate. The Lord stubbornly pursues us all the way into enemy territory, just as he pursued David to Aphek in the front lines. In Psalm 23, David wrote, and you can say it with me, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, that word follow in the Hebrew is too weak a word. Do you know what it really is? It means pursue. And God's goodness and mercy pursued David into enemy territory, and it pursues us as well. God's mercy is tenacious. Now, all the time that David was out of God's will and in the wrong company, what was God doing? Was he wringing his hands and wondering how on earth this is all going to work out? I mean, not at all. And if you turn to 1 Chronicles 12, you're going to find all the names of the men who came to David in Ziklag. And ultimately, ultimately, there were 340,000 people who gathered around this anointed exile and helped him secure the kingdom. But at this point, although he's out of the blessing and will of God, the Lord is quietly sending the reinforcement that he's going to need for future battles. See, the Lord never allowed the lapse of his servant into godlessness to divert him from his eternal purpose for David. Even in our sin and rebellion, God is sovereign, and his ultimate plans cannot be thwarted. You are no match for God's tenacious mercy, so give it up. Early the next morning, David and his men begin the 60-mile trek home. Now, what a contrast with David, who trudges off into darkness at the end of chapter 28. David walks away, saved by the Philistines, who will ultimately destroy Saul. See, David had known darkness, but his night was not like Saul's night. David experienced the mercy of God. Saul was another story. 
Now, David and his men could not wait to get home to their wives and families in Ziklag. They dodged a bullet with the Philistines. Who would have thought that they would go from the thrill of victory to the agony of defeat in the blink of an eye? What a roller coaster. Three days of hard marching brings them home to utter destruction and devastation. The city was burned to the ground. Everyone had been taken captive, and there was one thing to do, wail and weep until there was no strength left even to weep. And what little strength they did have left was exercised in blaming David and trying to convince one another to stone him. And their grief quickly changed to bitterness and rage. <clears throat> this is a disturbing and sobering picture for God's people. Have you ever had times when you think things cannot possibly get worse? Well, 1 Samuel 30 says, yes, it can. And there are times that you conclude that your current trouble is the last straw that you simply cannot take anymore, and then comes the lag, the last straw after the last straw. Everybody's been there. And in every situation, ladies, even Ziklag, God is completely sovereign. All of God's dealings with David and with us are designed to bring us to the end of ourselves and our own resources. Here is David standing among the ruins of his self-will. The outcome of his compromise is lying in ashes around him. He's despised by his enemies, he's blamed by his own people, and he has hit rock bottom. Finally, David has nowhere else to turn. So verse 6 tells us that he strengthened himself and the Lord is God. David is in the pit, but this is the turning point. So you have to ask the question, what does it mean to strengthen oneself in the Lord? And the Hebrew word for strengthen is kozak, and it literally means to tie fast or to fasten upon or to seize. Look at that picture of grasping on. And David has grabbed onto the Lord for all he was worth. Now, in this day and age, I think it's necessary to say that strengthening oneself in the Lord is not some kind of gospel magic. It's not a quick fix. It's not naming and claiming your victory. You know, the Lord is not a genie in a bottle that you rub when you're in trouble and you need to feel better. And neither is strengthening yourself in the Lord merely venting and letting go emotionally. David and his men wail to the point of exhaustion in verse 4. There is a difference between pouring out sorrow and strengthening yourself in God. Saul poured out his sorrow and distress, but he did not strengthen himself in the Lord. So let's look where David begins. He strengthens himself in the Lord his God. God was personal to him. Now, there is a vast difference between religion and personal faith. Saul could say that God was the shepherd of Israel, but David could say, the Lord is my shepherd. David returned to God's word. And we can't help but think back to chapter 23 when Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. And Jonathan reminded David that he would be king of Israel. And the hand of Saul would not find him. Jonathan reaffirmed the promise of the kingdom that Yahweh had made to David. And this is what gives strength. He recalls the Lord's promises. And this is exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness when he was tempted. He brought to mind God's word. But David also strengthened himself by accessing God's presence. He asks Abiathar the priest for the ephod, and David seeks direction from the Lord. Now, we haven't heard David ask for the ephod since chapter 23. That was some time ago. And he hasn't mentioned the Lord since chapter 26. But David is finally back on track spiritually, and he seeks guidance through the priest. 
and he strengthens himself by using his access to God's presence. Now today we don't have a Biafar or the ephod, but the same access to our Heavenly Father is available to us that was available to David. And Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. So let's hold fast, let's seize, <coughs> hold on to that our confession. And we can draw near to the, with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, we may not get specific answers like David received, but what we will find our mercy and the grace to help us. And that's enough. That's enough. So, if your self-will, your rejection of God's principles in your life, and your compromises have driven you into a desperate plight, remember that God loves you. He is still planning great things for you. And He alone can deliver you. The moment you stop fighting against Him and humble yourself before Him, when you encourage yourself in the Lord, at that moment, He's there. David was not put on double secret probation, and neither are you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So David was uh, given the necessary guidance by the Lord to begin the pursuit of the raiders. Now, we know from the text that they were the Amalekites, but David didn't necessarily know that, and they had no idea in which direction to search. They could spin in a circle, and they would have no idea which way to go. How would they know where to find them? I don't know, but off they went, counting on God's promise that they would rescue all. So this puts into perspective the discovery of this half-dead Egyptian slave who's been left behind by the marauders. God's providence is essential. And happening upon this discarded slave is the whole key to David's rescue operation. <coughs> Little did that Amalekite slave owner realize that abandoning his slave would prove to be fatal. Not to the slave, but to himself. Now, once he's been given food and water, the slave recovers sufficiently to lead them to the Amalekites. And the act of abandoning a sick slave in the desert to perish of thirst and hunger was inhumane, but very typical of what they did. They find the raiders sprawled out, completely inebriated, and they become an easy target for David's angry group of 400 men. Every single thing that had been stolen and every woman and child that had been carried off were recovered. And no sooner had they experienced this miraculous rescue and deliverance than David's leadership was again called into question. And some wicked and worthless men did not want to share. And the spoil, which included their own possessions, but it would have also included bounty from other raids that the Amalekites had made, and these evil men felt that uh, those who remained behind at the brook were not deserving, they weren't worthy, they couldn't have any of it. And their proposal was especially displeasing to David because he recognized that the outcome of this whole thing was the direct result of God lavishing his favor on them all. And it was David's desire to recognize the Lord in conjunction with this spoil, both to show that he hadn't made this assault and this foray uh, on the Amalekites for any personal gain at all, but he also wanted to show the goodness that God had shown him and his people. So David's theology determines his viewpoint. And it's a theology of grace that keeps his eyes riveted on the Lord's generosity. The troublemakers functioned on a philosophy of works 
and that, that is always impressed with its own contributions. We will not give them any of the plunder we have liberated. Well, David knew better. This was not plunder we have recovered, he insisted, but rather what the Lord has given to us. The difference between grace and works is the difference between worship and idolatry. I'm going to say that again. The difference between grace and works is the difference between worship and idolatry. The man inebriated with the thought that all he has is God's gift finds himself repeatedly on his knees, adoring, thanking, and praising. If we do not grasp grace, we plummet into idolatry, for that is the inevitable corollary of self-sufficiency. Worshiping and idolizing yourself are the only alternative to accepting God's grace. But David's theology of grace didn't just apply to those who stayed behind at the brook, but also to the elders of Judah and to his friends. These would have been the people who had helped him out when he was on the run from Saul. And he was not only generous, but he was wise as a serpent. He shares gifts from the plunder with a wide group of people. And this is going to help him win friends and influence people on his path to the kingship of Judah. But you know what? This was also just because many of these communities had likely endured Amalekite raids, and it was only right that they received back what had been taken from them by their enemies. Chapter 30 begins in tragedy, and it ends in triumph. And we sense a new season has begun for David. But the final chapter for Saul is over. And as we move to chapter 31, we just it's really a continuation of chapter 28. We've had this brief two-chapter interlude, but... It's such a sad story that it's almost as if the author's been dragging his feet to bring the story to its tragic conclusion. And he spent these two chapters kind of off with David before resuming this dark and sad story. And actually, there really isn't much to tell except it's just said in a couple of verses. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Machishu, the sons of Saul. Jonathan is the first reported casualty. Oh, what an incredible, incredible young man. He remained a true friend to David and a faithful son of Saul. He surrendered his kingship to David, and he sacrificed his life for his father. And in this hopeless fiasco, Jonathan was nowhere else but the place the Lord had assigned to him, at the side of his father. And it seems tragic to us, but the question is, what is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling which God has assigned you? Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose? Not at all. This text tells a tale of brutal disaster, outnumbered on all fronts, outmatched by the archers, Israel is slaughtered. Saul is badly wounded and pleads with his armor bearer to finish him off, but he refuses, and so Saul commits suicide by falling on his sword. The verb die is used four times in just a couple of verses. Saul has died, the bodyguard has died, and his sons have died. Israel's defeated, but why does it matter? Why is this all repeated? Because it's the fulfillment of the Lord's word spoken through Samuel in chapter 28. 
Just as the word of God announced the end of Hophni and Phinehas, it also announced the coming death of Saul and his sons. God's word always comes to pass. And while this is hardly uh, a happy fulfillment of the Lord's word, it is not without comfort. It's a dark time for the kingdom of God, but God's word shows that even this darkness is not outside of God's purpose. It falls within the boundaries of what he has already announced. And if God's judgment on Saul is true, we can be equally assured of his word of promise to David. In darkness or light, what matters is having a God who speaks a true and faithful word. We can depend on what he says. So the next day, the Philistines returned to Mount Gilboa, collecting prizes from Israelite corpses. And they discover Saul. So, of course, they chop off his head. They strip off his armor. They probably strip off his clothes as well in utter humiliation. And so... This is the final divestiture for Saul. He's stripped before the prophets. He's stripped of his royal garments at Endor. And now he lies naked on the battlefield in ultimate defeat. The Philistines put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body along with those of his sons to the wall of Bethshan. This was the most disgraceful, despicable thing that the Philistines could do to not only mock Israel, but to mock the living God. And the sadness of our text is not merely due to the fact that Israel is utterly crushed, but that God is ridiculed. So word spreads in Israel about what the Philistines had done to Saul, and the men of Gabish Gilead, Jabesh Gilead, try saying that fast three times, made a daring night rain, raid uh, to recover not only Saul's body, but those of his sons from the wall. And it was a 22-mile round trip made into the heart of enemy territory at night. Um, they didn't have their GPS phones to tell them where to go, but they made this raid at night. And why did they do this? I mean, they were already dead. What was this going to accomplish? They did it to honor their king. Do you remember when Saul was first anointed king, way back at the beginning of our story, and Nahash the Ammonite was besieging Jabesh Gilead, and threatening to gouge out the right eye of every man? Who was it who rallied the people to fight by sending the cut-up oxen throughout the territory of Israel? It was Saul. Jabesh Gilead had never forgotten. The spirit may have departed from Saul, and the Lord may not answer him, but there was a time when Saul was their savior, and they remain grateful. So proper burial and fasting are in order. And in fact, in this whole mess, this seems to be the only thing that is right. Gratitude carries its own ought, whether it changes anything or not. The women who kept watch at Jesus' crucifixion couldn't do anything, but they were there. When they watched him being placed in the tomb, they couldn't do anything, but they saw. When they took spices to anoint his body, they had no idea how they could do it, but they went. Love offers the kindness it can, and it doesn't forget the king even in death. This is a tragic ending, and the picture for Israel is not sunny. The king and his sons have been slaughtered. The promised land has been conquered by the enemies of God, and Israel has been scattered like a sheep without a shepherd. And in fact, after starting on a high note with the birth of Samuel, interspersed with a daring victory from Jonathan and David's defeat of Goliath, 1 Samuel is simply a sad book of one disappointment after another. 
from the judgment on the ungodly leadership of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, to the rejection of the prophetic leadership of Samuel, to the rebellion of Saul and his refusal to destroy the Amalekites, to the death of Saul and the slaughter of Israel on Mount Gilboa, this story careens from disaster to disaster. It is one giant car wreck. Here is the kingdom of God enduring one failure after another. But God, but God who looks on the heart has chosen a shepherd for these scattered sheep. And Psalm 78 tells us that he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of ewes with suckling lambs. He brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Presently, nothing looks quite as dismal as Mount Gilboa, but we need to remember that man looks at the outward appearance, and it's not what man sees that matters. David's story continues, and we're going to study that next year. Okay, and I have some application. And then a little thing. Okay, so here's application. These are some questions you can ask yourself, and I have them, I have them in a handout. <clears throat> Has there, is there an area in your life when you've quit trusting God and compromised your faith? You know, we don't run off to the land of the Philistines, but are you like me and you run off to the land of chocolate? <laughs> when the going gets tough, the tough eat chocolate. Maybe that's, your, maybe that's your land of the Philistines. Have you been at war so long in an area in your life that you've just given up, but you keep up your Christian appearance at all costs? Do you have family members who've been taken captive by the enemy? Are you strengthening yourself in the Lord and pursuing them? Maybe the only way you can pursue them is with prayer, but are you doing that? How has God been trying to bring you to the end of your own resources? And what do you think he could accomplish through your difficult circumstances? Okay, then we had great discussion, too, next about whether or not Saul was saved. And we can only speculate, but you know what? Ultimately, it doesn't matter. What matters is if you are saved. Have you relied on, trusted, submitted to, and relinquished the lordship of your life to Christ? Do you trust that his debt paid the debt you owe God for your sin and rebellion against him? Next, is the theology that runs your life based on grace or works, or do you just worship yourself? And six, are you showing kindness where you can and respect where you can? So those are some things to think about, and again, I have that in a handout. Okay, now, When I, okay, now this seems kind of funny. Okay, this says icy. When I, when I was running this morning, I was trying to think about how to quantify strengthening yourself in the Lord and what does that look like. And the Lord gave me this funny acronym. So instead of running off to the Philistines, we're going to run off and get an icy. So the first thing we have to do is identify the thought about what we don't believe God about. And then we need to compare that thought to what God's word actually says. Then, if we are not believing God, and we're calling God a liar, we have to confess that we believe Satan's lies instead of God's truth. And then we have to eradicate those lies by replacing them with God's promise. Get this up a little higher. And then finally, 
You have to come to the end of yourself, and you have to yield to his lordship and ask God to be glorified in this really hard situation in your life. Now, again, I've got, handout, I've got a handout of those application questions and of the icy application, but I thought the Lord was pretty, pretty smart this morning. And, um, and, and I thought, you know what, it's something I could remember. I could remember this when I am frazzled and frustrated and there's no end in sight and I want to find comfort in anything but the Lord. If it's running to other people, whatever it is that your comfort instead of the Lord is an idol in your life. And I want to be able to remember this summer, when we're not meeting, that I can go have an icy any time. And I can run to the Lord and deal with these things in my life this way. Because I don't want to end up in Aphic, where David spent so much time. Does that make sense? Okay, let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that you always provide the way of escape for, them, for us. And we don't always see it. And we don't always believe it, but I pray that uh, the lessons that you've taught us this semester about the life of David, your calling, your grace, your mercy, your goodness, how you pursue us in our rebellion are just such pictures of your marvelous love. And I pray that we would be struck with wonder and awe and throw up our arms in praise of you. And uh, I, I pray that you would help us remember these things. Um, every day of our lives and especially uh, as we we go through the summer and just thank you for these ladies and the things that you have taught us all in jesus name amen, amen.